You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Go with me to the book of Revelation. If you don't know where the book of Revelation is, it's going to be in the very back of the Bible. So just flip to the back, you'll find it. If you don't own a Bible, we want to give you one. Don't leave today without a Bible. If you go to those tables in the back of the room, you will find stacks of black Bibles. They will be right by the payment receptacles, or whatever Lindsay called them. (laughs) Better be a good sermon today if we're going to think of it that way, right? Uh, There are Bibles in the back. You can take one now, you can take one on your way out today, but we'd love to give you one, no strings attached. That's our gift to you. Uh, If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? We do this every Sunday because we believe that we are listening to the very words of God as we open this book. This is a book like none other. So listen carefully to what God has to say to us this morning in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, it's a good time to be at Faith Church uh, in person and online because we've just started this new study of the book of Revelation, which probably is the most fascinating and least understood book of the Bible. Last week, we spent a lot of time talking about the genre of Revelation. It's crucial for us to understand what type of literature it is that we're studying. Remember the illustration I gave you last week. If you run to Barnes & Noble this afternoon and you pick up a book of Caribbean cooking recipes and you try to use that book to find your way from Barbados to St. Bart's, what's going to happen? You're going to end up doubly disappointed, hungry and lost, right? Why? Because you have failed to understand the type of literature you're reading. You're looking in the book for something the book was not intended to give you. And so you wind up hungry and lost as are many readers of Revelation, because they failed to understand, first and foremost, what type of literature this is. And we discovered last week that contrary to the popular opinion of our day, so it seems, Revelation is not a crystal ball. It's not a crystal ball designed to give us a sequence of events in our day or to pinpoint specific individuals of our day. So I hate to disappoint you, but in our study of Revelation, we will find no references to Hitler or Saddam Hussein or the Pope or any president. We will find no references to the atom bomb or the communist revolution because we're going to take the genre seriously. We're going to do our best to read the book responsibly. Revelation is first and foremost a first century letter. 
which means its message must have been intelligible and helpful for the first century Christians to whom it was written. But we also learned last week that Revelation is not only a letter, it's also, it belongs to two other types of literature. It's a work of prophecy and it's an example of apocalyptic writing. Now that's the one that's most important. Remember that apocalyptic writing has a very specific goal. The goal is to change our perception of reality. It's to show us a new reality, the true reality. Revelation wants to change the way we see the world. The major message of this book is things are not as they seem. There is more to reality than meets the eye. And recall that Revelation does this, it changes our perception of reality by using symbols. It draws us into this symbolic world that it creates. And it draws us into that symbolic world so deeply that we emerge from that world and we see our world differently. We emerge from the symbolic world of Revelation and our passions have been awakened within us. We're inspired to join in this battle, the battle between good and evil that must be fought in every generation until the return of Christ. This is the unique and powerful contribution of Revelation. It doesn't just inform us, it inspires us. It causes us to see the true reality. You see, what we need, especially in weeks like the one that we just came out of, right? So much happening in the world. So much destruction and death and so many trials and tribulations. And what we need in these moments is we need someone to pull back the curtain and show us what is truly happening in the world. We need a revelation, an unveiling. There is more to reality than meets the eye. That's what this book is all about. Now last week we looked at chapter 1. And we learned in chapter 1 a little bit about the human author, John the Apostle. And we learned where he was at this time in history when he recorded this revelation, this vision for us. The Apostle John was living in the last decade of the first century. And at this time, Emperor Domitian had issued a decree that everyone was to worship him, to bow down to him, to worship Caesar as Lord. Now, John and many other early Christians refused. But Rome was powerful. And so John was exiled. He was sent to the island prison of Patmos. And as he is on Patmos, he looks across the sea and he remembers the churches that he left behind. And he knows that things are getting worse and worse for those Christians. He knows that they're disappointed. He knows that they're afraid. They're confused. And it's at that moment that he receives this vision from God that he records in the book of Revelation. And we learned that this book is given, the message is given to the seven churches in Asia. But we also discovered last week that numbers in the book of Revelation are symbolic. And the number seven is the number of completion. So John writes to these seven churches as representative of every church, of the church throughout time across the world. So these words that we will study today in chapters 2 and 3, the messages given to the seven churches, are also messages for us. When Jesus speaks to these seven churches in Asia, he is also speaking to the complete Christian community. The first thing John saw last week 
is one like a son of man. That's Jesus. Walking in the midst of the churches. Jesus is present with his people. Don't forget that. Jesus is present with his people. And we will see today in chapters 2 and 3 that he's not only present, he speaks. Jesus is not silent. Today in chapters 2 and 3, we will see seven mini-messages. One to each of these seven churches in Asia. Again, they all speak to us. But as we study these messages, we will notice some similarities and some dissimilarities. Now here's what's similar. In every one of the seven messages, we will see these words, to the angel of the church, and then the church will be named. So each message is sent through the church's angel. You ever wondered about guardian angels? Ever thought about that? I'm not sure if the Bible teaches that every Christian has a guardian angel, but the book of Revelation seems to suggest that every church has a guardian angel. These messages come through the church's angel. Why? As a reminder that we have heavenly help. We are never alone. The full resources of heaven. We are never alone. So that's one similarity. Here's another one. Each message will begin with these words from Jesus, I know. I know. The risen, reigning Jesus walks among his churches and he knows every single detail. He knows our strengths and our weaknesses. He knows our celebrations and our sins. He knows our hopes our fears. Jesus knows. And then at the end of every message, we will see these words, to the one who conquers, and a promise will be given. A variety of symbols are used in chapters 2 and 3, but the promise is always the same. It's the promise of eternal life. To the one who conquers. To conquer is by faith to overcome our various sins to persevere through the trials and tribulations of our day to follow Jesus to the very end. To the one who conquers, Jesus says, I will give you eternal life. So those are the similarities, but there are also dissimilarities. Mainly, of these seven churches, there are different conditions. Some of these churches are healthier than others. Some of these churches are more faithful to Jesus than others. We can group the seven churches into three categories. There are some that need to hear serious correction. So to them, Jesus gives the red light. Stop. Stop what you're doing. You have erred. Listen carefully and change. There's a second category. And to these, Jesus gives the yellow light. It's more of a cautionary word. There's definitely some things they're doing well. There's affirmation. But there is also correction. And then finally, there are some churches to which Jesus gives the green light. In these messages, we find pure affirmation. Jesus says, go. Keep doing what you're doing. You are faithful. Now let's look at these three categories together. In this order, starting with the ones that need the most correction, then the ones that are a mixture of both, and then finally at the end, the ones that are purely affirmed. And let's see what we can learn, because remember, when Jesus addresses these seven churches, he is addressing all churches. So here's the first category. 
those who are in need of serious correction. Ephesus is the first one. Ephesus is a place where truth is shelved but not shared. Shelved but not shared. Look at what Jesus says here. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, Ephesus is probably the most important church in this entire list. By this time in history, Ephesus was the center of the Christian movement. had a long history. This was a church founded by the Apostle Paul himself. It was a strategic city. They had some long-time, well-known members. In fact, one of the members of the church of Ephesus was Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, imagine going to the Christmas Eve service with Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the congregation. This is a well-known, well-respected church. And they took truth seriously. Look at what Jesus says. You don't bear with those who are evil. You have tested these messages that have come to you. And if it was not in alignment with what I taught you, Jesus says, then you toss that message out. So they have got the truth. They are holding on to it. And that was their strength. But as is so often the case, their strength became their weakness. Their tight grip on the gospel, their desire to preserve and protect the truth, it caused them to stop sharing that truth with people. They loved the truth, but not so much the people who needed the truth. Jesus says to them, you have abandoned the love you had at first. He means they have stopped sharing the gospel with the world. Ephesus had the truth in their hands and then they turned their back to the world. The truth, oh, it was stored safely. It was shelved for all the Christians to study. But it was not shared. So Jesus turns to them and he says, you've abandoned your first love. The world needs this message. That's the church in Ephesus, the place where truth is shelved but not shared. Now, the second church in need of serious correction is Laodicea. Laodicea is a place where Jesus himself had been ejected. Of all the words to these seven churches, the ones to Laodicea are probably the most well-known. Jesus says, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's pretty harsh, Jesus. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Probably the most harsh of all the words we find in the seven letters. And at the same time, Jesus holds out the promise. Laodicea, you too can conquer. You can repent. You can come back. But look at what had happened in Laodicea. Jesus has been ejected from the church. 
Let me give you a little illustration from my childhood that will help you get the picture here. When I was a little boy, I loved the James Bond movies, like the classic ones with Sean Connery, right? The best Bond ever. And I remember a few things about James Bond. He always had the coolest cars. He always had his Walter PPK. I had a pretend one when I was a kid. I ordered my milk shaken, not stirred. <laughs> if you remember some of the classic Connery movies, you'll remember that in Goldfinger, he drives that great car, that Aston Martin, with the ejector seat. You remember that? He has that red button, and he can push the red button, and the person in the passenger seat just goes flying out of the car, and off Bond goes on his mission, right? Here's what had happened in Laodicea. They hit that ejector button, and they sent Jesus out because they thought they could handle the mission without him. They thought they were self-sufficient. Look at where Jesus is when he delivers this message. He says, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is on the outside of the church. Now, sometimes pastors use these words as an appeal to unbelievers, but when Jesus speaks to them here, he is speaking to the church of Laodicea. He's saying, you guys have kicked me out. You're just cruising down the road as if you don't even need me. How could they have, how could they have thought that way? It's, it's so incredibly prideful, but don't you know who Laodicea was? Don't you know who these people were? Look, they're saying, I need nothing because they were known. In the ancient world, Laodicea was known for their big banks, their fashion industry, and the medical field. Laodicea had it all. And they had grown to a point, even in the church, of thinking, we are self-sufficient. We can do this on our own. And Jesus says, no, you are self-deceived. You're not self-sufficient. You're self-deceived. And so that's why he says to them these well-known words, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now this is commonly misinterpreted. When Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, you're lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, I don't think he's setting up here a spectrum of spiritual temperatures, as if hot stands for being on fire for God and cold stands for totally dismissing God. So Jesus is not saying that the ice-cold atheist is better than the lukewarm Christian. It's not a spectrum like that. And here's how we know this. Because we know something about the geography of Laodicea in the ancient world. They had two neighbors. One neighbor was known for its hot water, which in the ancient world was believed to have healing powers. The other neighbor of Laodicea was known for its cold water, which also was considered to be very beneficial. So in this illustration that Jesus is using, both hot and cold are good. They bring healing, they bring refreshment to the world. But to be in the middle, lukewarm, that wasn't helpful at all. Jesus says, you are lukewarm water. Nobody wants it. Nobody needs it. This is the state you have drifted into. But you can come back, he says. I'm at the door. All you got to do is let me back in. Just let me back in. Now, these are the churches that need the most serious correction. Remember what I said. When Jesus speaks to these churches, he speaks to all churches. So we must ask the question, 
What is it that Jesus is saying to us here? Have we become like the church in Ephesus? A place where the truth is known well and guarded and shelved, but not shared. Has the pandemic of the last 18 months caused us to turn inward? So afraid, so worried about our own survival that we are missing the opportunities to share the gospel. Have we become like the church in Laodicea? Thinking that we are self-sufficient. Relying on our own power. Don't you know who we are? Don't you know our leaders, our organizational skills, our marketing concepts? Don't you know who we are? We are not self-sufficient. We need Jesus every second of every day. We must not be like these churches. Now there's a second category. The second category, to these, Jesus gives the yellow light. They were doing some things well, but they had their problems. The fleas come with the dog. To Pergamum and Thyatira, places where faith had become flexible, Jesus says, and this is specifically to Thyatira, but the situations are very similar here. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, what was going on here in Pergamum and Thyatira? Well, to understand, we have to jump into our DeLorean and get that thing up to 88 miles an hour so we can go back in time for just a minute. We're going to go all the way back to the world of the first century. And what you need to know is that in the first century world, religious practices, social embrace, and economic success were intertwined. Let me say that again so that it sticks. In the first century world, religious practices, social embrace, and economic success, they were all tied together. So the way it typically worked is if you lived in a city, you were expected to honor the gods of that city, to sacrifice to the gods of that city. In Thyatira in particular, there was a prime example of this because this was a thriving economic place. And in Thyatira, they had many trade guilds, trade societies. And if you wanted to be a person who was trading with others, if you wanted to be a businessman or businesswoman of the day, you had to be in one of those trade guilds. And the gateway to the guild was religious practices. You honor the gods of the guild. You honor the gods of that area. And if you didn't, you were not embraced and you had no business. Now add to this the fact of the imperial cult at the time. Remember, Domitian is the emperor. He demands that all citizens worship him. So if you're not participating in these religious practices of the day, you are not a successful business person. The message of the day was clear. Believe what we tell you to believe. And if you do, life will be easy 
and business will be good. Believe what we tell you to believe, and if you do, life will be easy and business will be good. That was the message of the day. So you can see how Christians felt this enormous pressure to compromise. To say that they were indeed followers of Jesus, but at the same time participate in these idolatrous practices. And it seems that the pressure had gotten to at least some of the Christians in Pergamum and Thyatira. And so they were saying things like, I can worship Jesus and sacrifice to idols. I can say Jesus is Lord and Caesar is Lord. Their faith had become flexible. They had become tolerant of idolatry. The reference to Jezebel here is is an Old Testament reference that stands for compromise with idolatry. This is a pressure we feel today, isn't it? If you believe what we tell you to believe, life will be easy, business will be good. The Christians in Pergamum and Thyatira felt the pressure as well. Now, There's another place that Jesus gives the yellow light to, and it's Sardis. And in Sardis, the problem was the saints had fallen asleep. Jesus says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Sardis is is like most churches in America, I think. Sardis had a great reputation. They had great memories. They had a reputation of all the service they had done years ago. Memories of fruitfulness and faithfulness. This was a church full of Uncle Rico's from Napoleon Dynamite back in 82. Back in 82. Man, the good old days. Christians just gathered around in Sardis and they talked. Don't you remember the good old days? We had a thousand people in worship. Don't you remember the good old days? That one year we had a hundred baptisms back in 82. We fed the whole community back then. For them, their past faithfulness had become an excuse for their present laziness. They spent so much time dreaming about the good old days, they were doing nothing in the present. They've fallen asleep. And when Jesus speaks to these churches, he speaks to all churches. So again, we must ask, what is Jesus saying to us? Have we become like Pergamum and Thyatira? Has our faith become too flexible? Have we compromised, conformed to the world in certain ways? Or maybe we've become like Sardis, the sleeping saints. We have all those great memories of how things used to be back in 1962. We spend so much time dreaming about the past. We're not doing anything in the present. Now listen, let me say this. I don't intend to offend anyone too much here. While we all feel these temptations, I think 
the younger generation must be most aware about the temptation of Pergamum and Thyatira because with your whole career ahead of you, you will especially be tempted to compromise and to do whatever is necessary to succeed economically, right? And I think the older generation will be especially tempted to just go to sleep like Sardis. You will be tempted to say, I have served enough. I did all of these things back in the day. Now it's my time to stop giving and stop serving and let somebody else do it. Now here's the bottom line. Jesus is not pleased with any of this. So we must not be like Pergamum and Thyatira and we must not be like Sardis. Not in these respects. Final category. The churches that receive pure affirmation, nothing but positive words from Jesus here. This is who we want to be like. To the church in Smyrna, a place of brave suffering, here's what Jesus says. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Smyrna is very different from some of the other churches we've looked at. This was not a place of great economic status. These are poor folks. Poor folks. Jesus reminds them, spiritually, you're rich. But in terms of worldly possessions, they didn't have much. Why? Because they were not compromising their beliefs. Remember the message of the day. If you believe what we tell you to believe, then life will be easy and business will be good. Well, Smyrna didn't go for that. And so for them, life was not easy and business was not good. Apparently, some of the Jews in this city were snitching on the Christians as well. They were jealous of the, of the progress the gospel was making. And so they were snitching on the Christians, meaning they were saying to Rome, hey, those Christians, they're not bowing down to the emperor. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And this was causing even more trouble for the Christians in the city. To the point that Jesus says, things are going to get worse before they get better. He says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. You'll be tested for ten days. A ten, like the number seven, is another number of completion or fullness. So don't miss what Jesus is saying here. You will suffer fully, meaning as much as is necessary, in accordance with my good plan, Jesus says. When we as God's people suffer, we suffer for a reason. There's a good reason, a good purpose hidden somewhere in it. Now, how can I say that when Jesus is so clear here about the devil being the one who throws them into prison? And where did the devil come from, by the way? I thought this was Rome, the powers of Rome. They, they were the ones that were sending people to prison or banishing John to the island of Patmos, right? But here's one of the themes that will be developed throughout the book of Revelation. Behind the imperial cult, behind all persecution and suffering of God's people. Behind all of that is the devil. 
evil spiritual forces at work. The primeval lie-breathing dragon. The instigator of all insurgents, all rebellion against God and his people. And yet, and yet, Jesus can say, you going to prison, you suffering, there will be a good purpose in it. Never forget that Jesus knows the duration of your suffering. He knows the details of your suffering. You are not suffering alone. And you are not suffering purposelessly. It is purposeful. So be brave. Suffer, even to the point of death. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life, Jesus says. Now here's the last one. We should be like Smyrna, and we should be like Philadelphia. A place of bold witness. The final church. I know your works, Jesus says. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Oh, I love this one so much. See, Philadelphia, this was not a mega church. They didn't have a mega budget. Jesus speaks of them as a little power, probably meaning they were a small number, just a small number of Christians. And yet they had a mighty witness. The open door that Jesus speaks of here means that he is giving them, he is promising them an incredible opportunity to make a difference in the world. Yes, they were small. But Jesus promises that they will accomplish great things as they remain committed to him, come what may. So one last time. When Jesus addresses the seven churches, he addresses all churches. So one last time, let's ask, what is Jesus saying to us? Are we like Smyrna? Are we willing to suffer bravely? Or are we more concerned with life being easy? Hey, if i got to compromise a little, I'll just compromise a little. Because honestly, I'd rather have more money. Honestly, I'd rather life just be smooth. Are we like the church in Philadelphia? A place of bold witness? Here's one of the things that I've thought and prayed a lot about. I'm going to kind of shoot from the hip here at the end. What has happened to our church and all churches over the last 18 months? You've no doubt noticed that, right? Compared to the size of group we were before COVID, we are a little power. Pre-COVID, we had about 250 people in worship. This morning, we got about 150. Most churches today in America, whether you know this or not, have between 60 and 80% of the people worshiping and participating in their congregations that they had pre-COVID. Now, why is that? Well... A lot of pastors and church leaders are beginning to speak of the great sifting of COVID. Now, some people have very good reasons for not participating in worship, and maybe they're still joining online at home digitally every week, and I'm not speaking to those folks. But there have been a lot of folks that throughout the last 18 months have just fallen out of church entirely. They're not worshiping anywhere. They're not serving anywhere. They're not giving. They're not doing anything. They've just fallen out of church entirely. Because what happens? If you think way back to 2020, and I know we all want to forget it, 
all churches shut down, right? We all went into quarantine together, and it's very easy when you're not gathering at all and everybody's quarantined, it's very easy to develop some new habits, isn't it? So what did some people start doing? They started boating and cycling. Heck, maybe just sleeping late and eating pancakes. New habits were formed. New priorities established. New rhythms of life. Before you know it, church is just gone. So here we are. Most churches in America, 60 to 80% of the people we had before. So what do we do? What do we do? We just quit? We just throw in the towel? No. No. Because what did Jesus say to this first century church? Little power, open door. Open door. I'm going to keep moving forward, Faith Church. You with me? You with me? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. And we believe that we have been given an open door. We believe that you, Lord Jesus, the Lord of the church, the one who is present with us and speaking to us, that you have given us an opportunity to take the gospel to our community and to the world. Because with so much hurt and hurting, with so much pain and suffering, There is a great need for good news. With every type of suffering, there comes a sifting. We should expect that. But we know you are with us. We know you are good. We know your plan is good. And we know your power is unmatched. So my prayer this morning is that we at Faith Church that we would conquer. The same word used in Revelation 2 and 3. To the one who conquers, I promise eternal life. So by faith, by faith, we seek to overcome our various sins to persevere through our trials and our tribulations, to follow you, Lord Jesus, to the very end, knowing that you are the victor. And then we as your people, we are victorious. In Jesus' name, amen.